Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Stephen DeLay. Last name is spelled D-E-L-A-Y. We just were kind of conversing on Twitter. I noticed that he had done some work with friends of mine on Psyop Cinema on the subject of Terrence Malick, somebody who I'm interested in. I've seen a couple of his movies, Badlands and Thin Red Line, two of his earlier works. I have not watched his earlier stuff, but uh, he had just compiled and edited a book. The title of it, if you're watching on YouTube, is Life Above the Clouds, Philosophy in the Films of Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick. Malick is spelled M-A-L-I-C-K. And we were just talking in the pre-show how the films of Terrence Malick have only increased in repute. People have realized they're more profound on second and third viewings, or even from the beginning. And I, I was reading through the book, and I noticed that some of the reviews for Terrence Malick's earlier films were... Uh, pretty mediocre. They weren't as what they are looking at today, but this book has a bunch of different or a variety of different essays compiled together. So if you're a cineast or a film critic, I would highly recommend you read through this. I've read through the introductory uh, uh, essay that Steve wrote. The title of it is Malikian Cinema at the Intersection of Art and Philosophy. But um, Steve is a writer and philosopher living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's an old member of Christ Church, Oxford. He's the author of Elijah Newman Died Today, 2022, Everything 2022, Faint Not 2022, and The Spirit 2022, Before God 2020, and Phenomenology in France 2019. So he's been very busy. He's been a lot. Um, an editor of Finding Meaning, Essays on Philosophy, Nihilism, and the Death of God 2023, which was based upon a series of online essays, essays Finding Meaning which I think overlaps very well with kind of Malick's uh, film uh, catalog. And he is an interesting guy. I did some research into Malick and his films, and there was like a 20-year you know, hiatus from making films, but we can just kind of talk about that background with Stephen DeLay. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, William. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Cool. So, I mean, you did the, I think you did a three-part analysis of Malik with uh, Tom and Brett on PSYOP Cinema. Maybe you can kind of go through what you guys covered, and then we can kind of get into who was uh, Terrence Malik for people who don't know. Yeah. So it turns out that the way in which I first came to learn of your work was through the work that the guys at PSYOP Cinema have done, because of course I know you've, you've collaborated with them on a number of occasions. So I'm, I'm grateful for that because that's how I came to learn about the work that you do. Uh, as for what Brett and Thomas and I have been doing at PSYOP Cinema, we're currently in the midst of a multi-episode series working through the entire uh, filmography of Malick, beginning with his first film, Badlands in 1973, and then our series will culminate in a final episode on uh, his most recent film, which is A Hidden Life from 2019. Uh, the third episode in the series, which covered The Thin Red Line, and also uh, what you've referred to as the, the hiatus or the absence that went out, came out a few weeks ago. And then yesterday, actually, Thomas and I recorded the fourth episode, which is going to cover uh, Malik's fourth film, uh, The New World. So, uh, you know, for listeners of, of yours, I think they're probably familiar with uh, the basic premise of PSYOP Cinema, which is that um, Hollywood and film has been a huge uh, player in what we in these circles call cultural engineering and shaping public opinion and reshaping public norms and, and things of this sort. And of course, uh, the guys at PSYOP Cinema are also interested in the the, the involvement of the, the Department of Defense, intelligence services, and then also secret societies and the occult. 
and what exactly is going on behind the production of these Hollywood films and what sort of messages are they promoting and uh, how does viewing film uh, change human perception and, and, and people's minds and, and attitudes and opinions toward, toward reality and their views about uh, the, the, uh, the, the shape of society and, and all sorts of other kinds of things. And so Malik is, in a way, I think, uh, a really important director when it comes to these sets of questions. Uh, first of all, just simply in virtue of uh, his films themselves, which are in many ways very influential, very unique, and I, I think ultimately very uh, spiritually edifying and rewarding. So in that respect, there's a certain way in which one can view Malik's films as being a sort of a potential exception to the rule when it comes to Hollywood filmmaking in terms of the kind of uh, uh, view of, of, of human nature that Malik is, is presenting. At the same time, another reason why he's interesting is that although he has a sort of reputation for being a kind of Hollywood outsider, he's incredibly well-connected going back to his earliest uh, student days as a philosopher. And this is one of the reasons that his films first drew my interest is that as a philosophy graduate student at Rice University over a decade ago, uh, the first film of his that I ever saw in theaters was uh, the new, uh, sorry, um, The Tree of Life. And that movie sort of awakened me to the possibility of doing Christian philosophy because I thought that having seen that movie that there's a sense in which Malik was making Christian cinema. And so I've always been interested in this uh, potential interface between the arts and philosophy and how Christian faith might sort of inform uh, what it would what what it would mean or what it would take to produce quality Christian philosophy. So Malik was a sort of inspiration for me in that regard in virtue of just seeing what I take to be the just immense beauty and power of his films. Malik uh, has a philosophical background himself. That's, just, I think, a third reason why uh, academic philosophers and film theorists are so drawn to his films is Malik studied philosophy at, at Harvard, and then he went on to study philosophy uh, as well for a time at Oxford. And um, I could say more about that, but uh, I guess I'll, I'll just pause there and see if there's anything that, that you want to ask. I think it just may be some of the philosophers he was attached to, because I think that the philosophy that influenced him is also imparted into his films. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. In fact, right now there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a field within the philosophy of film or film theory that is uh, exploring the idea of, uh, of film as philosophy. What would it mean for film as an art form to, to, to engage in philosophy or to be philosophy or to be philosophical? Uh, there's figures such as Robert Pippin, who's at uh, the University of Chicago, who's written extensively on film, uh, particularly film noir. And there's a number of other theorists, uh, people like Stephen Mulhall at Oxford and others, and uh, Robert Sinnerbrink, who's actually a Malik scholar, who's been doing work in this area as well. So, you know, there's this longstanding uh, question going all the way back to Plato about the the, the relationship between art and philosophy and art standing toward truth and whether or not art has something to contribute to the human pursuit of truth or whether, in fact, there's something about art that can be pernicious and can uh, serve as a, as a vehicle of propaganda or deceit or something like this. Um, again, Malik is interesting 
because he was being trained as a academic philosopher. When he was at Harvard, he was studying under Stanley Cavell. And it was actually Cavell who was one of the first American philosophers to begin popularizing a serious scholarly investigation of uh, the relationship between film uh, and philosophy. And it's Cavell who's notable again, not simply because Malik was in a way his protege while at Harvard, but that uh, Cavell was also very interested in the German uh, 20th century philosopher, Martin Heidegger. And uh, it's Martin Heidegger who also influenced Malik. So when Malik was at Harvard, he was working on Edmund Husserl, who had been uh, Malik, uh, sorry, Heidegger's own sort of uh, mentor, and then uh, the work of Heidegger as well. And eventually, uh, Malik went on to actually translate a work of Heidegger's from the German into English. So Cavell took Malik under his wing when Malik was at Harvard. And in fact, one of uh, Cavell's most famous uh, works on film, uh, the, uh, he in his uh, acknowledgement section to a, to a revised edition actually personally thanks Malik and mentions one of Malik's films as being deeply inspirational. After Malik left Harvard, he was recruited to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And I'm sure as your audience is aware, um, the Rhodes Scholarship has in some ways a very kind of nefarious history. When you look at the Milner Group and the research that people such as Carol Quigley have done, uh, the Rhodes Scholarship tends to be a sort of recruiting ground for people who, who end up being set up as public intellectuals. And so one suspicion that I've had, and this is a sort of thesis that Brett and Thomas and I have been kind of playing with as we've been working through Malik's filmographies, to what extent was Malik being recruited by these forces at Oxford to potentially serve as a kind of public intellectual who as a, a philosopher would be uh, steering public opinion uh, in light of whatever sort of different uh, agenda that um, that this sort of echelon of power was would, would be interested in promoting to the public. So what happened is when Malik got there, there was a philosophical falling out between his advisor, Gilbert Ryle, and himself. And Ryle was a very powerful figure in Oxford philosophy at the time. He was associated with what was called ordinary language philosophy. And the basic idea between behind ordinary language philosophy was the idea that philosophy's purchase on truth really doesn't go beyond anything uh, aside from linguistic analysis. And the idea was that the kind of traditional longstanding questions that philosophers had been asking for so long, questions about ethics and questions about metaphysics, questions about the nature of, of reality and human nature, the idea was that these questions were, in a sense, pseudo-questions. They were questions that appeared to be legitimate questions, but actually were victims of the misuse of language. And the idea was that what happens is philosophers get tied up in these puzzles that admit of no real solution because they're asking questions that appear to be questions, but they're really not. And so the idea was that if philosophers stick to the way language works and uh, they focus on the ordinary usage of language, they'll come to see that these questions that have puzzled philosophers for so long actually aren't real questions. This was more or less Gilbert Ryle's view, and it's a view that Malik himself deeply disagreed with. So when Malik went on to write the thesis he wanted to write, uh, Ryle shut it down, and then uh, Malik left Oxford and went on 
to make film. So the idea that a lot of people have who have studied Malik's uh, philosophical background, his academic pedigree, and then also his films is that Malik may have found a way to actually do philosophy uh, through his film is, is, is the idea. Right. And didn't Heidegger even say that? I remember reading in the intro chapters that Heidegger himself devalued kind of philosophizing inside of sterile environments. So in some ways, Malik's natural step was to go into film to share his ideas in the, in the films that he made. Uh, it seemed to be the case. Did you get that impression? Yeah. Well, there it's, a, it's ambiguous because on the one hand, as you say, Heidegger was very critical of the entire history of Western philosophy. So it's a long story, and in some ways it's tedious. I won't get into it here, but uh, at a certain period in Heidegger's thinking, he, he he publishes probably his most arguably important, certainly most famous work in 1927, which was a work entitled Being in Time. And then his, his, his thinking evolves through the 30s and into the 40s and beyond. And uh, Heidegger comes to the, the conclusion uh, at some point, at least in the 40s, that in some sense, the entire Western philosophical tradition, beginning with Plato, is fundamentally misconceived in that it's it's failing to ask the most important philosophical question in the right way. And for Heidegger, uh, that question is the question of the meaning of being. What is being? So Heidegger was not only very critical of uh, the Western philosophical canon going back to Plato, but he was, of course, also very critical about um, most of university uh, philosophy, which he thought wasn't really philosophy. He thought, well, you know, these philosophers, they're employed at universities, they're pay, they're being paid to do this. And they're, in effect, what, you know, so, uh, someone like Plato would have called a sophist. They're being paid to teach philosophy. They're, they're being paid to write philosophy, but they're not genuine philosophers. That kind of attitude toward the history of philosophy and philosophy as a as a as an academic discipline within within the modern university system, that's something that Malik definitely I think is in line with with Heidegger. He didn't fit well in that academic environment. But uh, one thing that's interesting about Malik's decision to go into film, that in a way is kind of anti Heideggerian, is that Heidegger also has a critique of technology, and so Heidegger was very. You I, demoralized by by much of modern technology, and he, he hated television, and he also hated cinema. And so actually that's interesting. A, an interesting thing is that Malik becomes a film director, and so many people have said that Malik is doing Heideggerian cinema, which in a way you might think is an oxymoron because Heidegger himself loathes cinema. Right. It's interesting. I think uh, in, in, your, uh, in your essay, you talk about how he's – how. Malik is using a technological device. Yeah. yeah. It. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm, but he's using, mm -hmm. I think that in a way you could perceive Malik as being a very successful philosopher because he's uh, he's putting putting these philosophizing films out before the public audience and making them think about these philosophical things. And maybe we can talk about Malik's style and how different he is maybe than any other filmmaker because he uses long takes and you can see even on the cover of your book, you got these wide angle pictures. Maybe the book cover doesn't really convey that. But those are right there from the beginning all the way through his films, his particular style. Can you kind of talk about uh, Malik as a filmmaker? Sure. Well, I mean, there's so much to say. It's it's difficult to know where to begin. Um, why, why don't we just I start with the, the, the cover image for, for the volume in question, um, because I think it's very illustrative of what makes Malik's 
style as a as a filmmaker so unique and, and recognizable. Um, the cover image is a still from a hidden life, and it's a a, a shot from a montage sequence in which uh, the main character, the protagonist of a hidden life, Franz Jagerstadter, is on his motorcycle. And, uh, it, it, and there's a scene in which his wife, Fanny, is recollecting when she first met him and what Franz was like when they met. And Franz had been apparently kind of like a renegade maverick sort of uh, bad boy uh, back, in, you know, whatever that means at the time back in, you know, 1940, whatever, Austria. But he had a motorcycle. And so Fanny's recollecting uh, uh, Franz and, and his motorcycle. And so this shot is a still of uh, of a shot of Franz on his motorcycle. Uh, you mentioned the wide angle lens. So the cinematography in Malick's films is very distinctive, his use of light. Uh, in classical film theory, there was a debate about what the function of film is in terms of uh, film's relation to reality. So I had mentioned, I think, in passing Plato, but one of the reasons why Plato disliked uh, the arts, or at least uh, poetry, is that on a classical understanding of art, art is mimetic. It, it, it replicates reality, right? right? And so so Plato had this view, I think uh, probably many of your listeners already know this, according to which ultimate reality is invisible. It's uh, atemporal. It's universal. Uh, it, it's not sensible. So it's not physical. And so for Plato, uh, truth is arrived at through contemplation of, the, of these forms. And so then the question is, well, in what sense, if at all, could art be a vehicle for truth if art is mimetic? Because then art, whether you're looking at a uh, painting or sculpture, is really just going to reproduce something physical or sensible. It's right. going to be, as it were, an image, but it's an ontological uh, departure from reality in itself. And so there's something that similar is arising with film, right? So you have the film image, right? You, 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 which right. is in a way a reproduction of whatever it is that you're filming. So one question is, well, why do we even want to make images of reality? Like, why isn't reality itself enough? Why does the why do we as humans have this this impulse to replicate reality? What is the replication of reality through an image, whether it's photography or in film? What exactly does that contribute to truth or what is it that's valuable, if at all, about doing that? So some of the classical film theorists thought that in order for art to be uh, valuable in itself as art, there has to be some kind of stylistic departure from reality. So that art to be art has to in some way be symbolic or it has to be stylized in such a way that you're getting more than reality itself. Right. Now, other classical film theorists said, no, actually, the, the function of art as a, a means of truth is that it's supposed to disclose reality. So the idea would be that a good film, just like good photography, shows us reality uh, in a way in which we may not have noticed or paid attention. And so uh, Malik, in my view he tends toward this, this latter camp of cl the classical film theorists. He's in a sense a realist. Uh, he films his, his movies in such a way that when you look at his films, 
you're seeing reality. You're seeing the world as such. It's not a stylized or symbolic representation or departure from reality. He's trying to get us to see things about everyday life and about the world that we may not normally attend to or we may ordinarily ignore or not appreciate. So Malik is sort of working within this kind of uh, realist tradition of film that's seen uh, viewing film as a kind of spiritual exercise that's meant to basically heighten our awareness and increase our attention uh, toward reality itself. Right. So he's the latter. He's the, I think you mentioned Bazin, B A Z I N. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That has, and so that was another, I think the Cavell like wrote about him too. So maybe some of those ideas went through to Malik. But yeah. So is it, and this is just applies to all art, right? Is art worthwhile? And obviously it is going all the way back to, I mean, Greek statuary or something like that. Why are people doing these representations? Why have they always, maybe all the way back to, you know, hunter-gatherer styles. It's because it's a snapshot of that reality that enhances your understanding of the reality you saw is my agreement. So I definitely am in the latter camp as well. But I mean, he he's so different. Like they didn't appreciate his early films, the, the still, even the super wide angle shots in Badlands and you know, no, no quick editing and also the philosophizing. So he will take scenes where people are doing something while the character is the, the mental processes are happening. The, the audio is different than the scene. So not, not the same as them talking, right? Isn't that distinctive to Malik? Yeah. So he's the master of voiceover. So you had mentioned what is unique about his films. Well, there's uh, his use of light, the, the choice of lenses he uses, this uh, penchant for realism, but yeah, uh, also his use of music is extraordinary and very unique, and also his use of voiceover, which I think has a, a philosophical or spiritual component to it. He's interested in, uh, you know, in a Dostoevskyan or Kierkegaardian way, he's interested in exploring the interiority of, of human beings, of what it's really like to be a human being. And I should add, if you think back to some of the things I just had to say with regard to uh, his advisor at Oxford, Gilbert Ryle, the, the, the ordinary language philosopher, I think another thing that's unique to Malick's film is that films is that he's interested, I would say, in the ineffable. And in, in other words, he's interested in, in, in exploring and framing and highlighting things that in a way frustrate our language or potentially uh, in principle, defy defy words, right? So this would be the power of the image, right? The idea is, well, why bother writing, for example, a philosophical treatise if through film I can show an audience what it is that I would be trying to describe or express in language, right? So the idea is that the power of the image through cinema, if it's done in the right way, can actually communicate something paradoxically that is in a, a way otherwise incommunicable that couldn't be put into words. And so I think that this also explains why Malik loves the voiceover is that very often his characters in his films in the voiceover are saying things that uh, they're struggling to articulate for themselves. What is it that I'm actually feeling? What is it that I'm actually thinking? What is it that I'm actually experiencing? And it's this search for, for words to, to, to convey what it is that they're feeling that the audience sort of is privy to as well. And part of what's also going on is that Malik in some ways is a cynic when it comes to human society, right? He thinks that 
there's a sense in which human civilization and, and human society is kind of premised on a fundamental kind of deceit or or de de uh, delusion that people lie to each other, that people pretend to be things that they're not, that their lives in a way are sort of, uh, their inner lives are ultimately kind of detached from what it is that, uh, from their, their everyday life in terms of how they present themselves to others. And the idea is like the truth about what's really going on with ourselves and the truth about the human condition in a way that that's a matter of the heart. And this is also why very often in the voiceovers, I think it's the case that we're actually be, we're actually privy to prayers very often. It's these characters who are who are praying to God or speaking to God or uh, addressing themselves in language to somebody else other than other human beings around them. It's something that's happening uh, in their heart, uh, in in their interiority. Right. That I think that marks the importance of his films and the themes that roll through all of his films is that you're seeing the thoughts as these people play out their lives. Sometimes very ordinary things, you know, somebody's you know, dancing down the street or waiting for war or uh, in, as far as the uh, thin red line is concerned. So mm -hmm. really fascinating kind of approach, I think, that sets him apart. And I think I've, one of the interesting things that you just talked about, like the corrupt word, uh, corrupt world, but like uh, you mentioned the aesthetic theodicy. So it's almost like he's going into those notions of good and evil in a in his own aesthetic sense. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I find so um, rewarding about Malik's films is that uh, he very he very much is interested in beauty. And I mean, as anybody who's studied the history of aesthetics and is aware of like the current condition of institutionalized art with this the postmodernism that's out there, there's very much uh, an interest in sort of this like hyper reflexivity where people are just uh, constantly working through like what is art deconstructing art you know you get like the the, the Duchamp like toilet stuff right. and 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 that's not at all Malik's interest Malik is very interested in art being essentially uh, related to beauty but I think that there's also a sort of moral valence to Malik's interest in beauty because he also thinks that beauty is in some sense indissociably related to to the, to the good to goodness so there's this idea of what I've called an aesthetic theodicy, I think, in Malik's films, and that he's trying to respond to longstanding theological and spiritual questions, questions about uh, the, the, the possibility of human meaning in light of death and in light of sin and in light of evil. He's trying to answer these questions through an exploration of beauty, that somehow beauty kind of redeems existence in this way in which it can inspire us to be morally good despite the fact that we live in a corrupt world and despite the fact that we're in a fallen world and despite the fact that there's suffering and evil and, and immorality and all these sorts of things. Yeah. It's really interesting though. those themes run through the films that I saw and you, I mean, it kind of is a classical sense, right? That's a classical notion. The, these old philosophers and cultures enhance, whether it's Roman Greek enhanced beauty as a, a thing of meaning, right. Or uh, something that gives joy and gives validity and meaning to life. So it's it's different than that kind of, like you mentioned, postmodern deconstructionist types. But uh, what other things do you, do you see in Malik that sets him apart? And maybe you can talk, maybe just the ordinary stuff. Like he's been able to attract a lot of very first rate, if not triple A kind of actors and stuff into his projects too. Like he he attracts those actors maybe that other directors couldn't get. 
Can you maybe talk about that? Yes. That that is part of what I think complicates assessing Malik's filmography as a Christian. So there is a sense in which I think uh, it's impossible to write off the idea that Malik is in some sense engaging in a kind of Christian cinema. At the same time, because these are Hollywood films, one wonders, well, how is he able to make these films? Now, if you want to be an optimist about it, one thing to say is that Malik is just so extremely, extremely and extraordinarily gifted that his work is so good that Hollywood has in a way been forced to, to make room for it, even if a lot of his films in a way are promoting uh, messages that would be contrary to, to what Hollywood typically promotes. Now, it gets complicated because, and this is something that uh, I've gotten fairly extensively with, with Brett and Thomas in our conversations over there, but Malik got his start as a filmmaker at AFI. And it was AFI that was in, uh, founded by a number of guys that had associations back in Washington, D.C. with the CIA. And of course, as you and others know, there's a long history of cooperation between the Central Intelligence Agency and Hollywood. And of course, uh, so the question is, well, what is Malik's relationship to that entire milieu? I mean, he would have been exposed to this beginning at Harvard and then going off to Oxford because a number of these academics also have intelligence connections. And of course, there's all these secret societies and a lot of, a lot of hidden hand kind of stuff that goes on. Malik was in a way tapped into all of this. In fact, I think it's very difficult to explain how it was that he ended up at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, and then how after that, before going to AFI, he was working as a journalist at, at uh, Life Magazine and some other places. This was all arranged through people that he had met through Harvard and Oxford. So uh, he's definitely set up. He's definitely very well connected, and he's connected to a lot of people who are just frankly bad people. Hmm. Um, so my view, and it's just a hypothesis, but my view is that Malik's first two films, uh, Badlands from 1973 and then Days of Heaven from 1978, my view is that he's making films that are pleasing to the Hollywood set that was responsible for bringing him into AFI and getting him started as a director. But in a way, he's subverting a lot of the Hollywood ethos of the time out of the new Hollywood kind of like radical left a social, political, revolutionary spirit by actually deconstructing some of these sort of like uh, superficial Marxian uh, leftist interpretations of human society. And then I think what happened is maybe some of the people that were working with him kind of got clued into that this was what he was doing. And so when he finished his second film, Days of Heaven, which was in many ways a, a success, he was given a, um, a studio contract with Paramount. And I think what could have happened is that when he was going to be forced to make studio films, he just didn't feel comfortable doing that because he didn't want to be making film that was promoting a kind of agenda that just didn't sit with him uh, personally, given his own moral and, and religious convictions. And so he bails on Hollywood. And he's gone for 20 years uh, during what you call the, the absence of the hiatus before he comes back as a director for his third film, uh, The Thin Red Line. Right, it's remarkable. Like he seems to have a consistent kind of personal integrity throughout his academic and even his film career, uh, to his own detriment. I would seems like to me. Well, you know, 
like this whole new Hollywood uh, may you, right? You, t- you look at other really famous directors from that period, like George Lucas, uh, Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, De Palma. A lot of these uh, directors are very famous. Uh, the public knows about them. I mean, Malick is in some ways much more a niche figure. I think a lot of people have seen his films. They might know some of his films. But, you know, I was actually kind of surprised in editing this volume when people have been asking me, oh, what are you working on? And I tell them, and they don't, they don't know who Terrence Malick is. So, I mean, he doesn't have that kind of like mainstream public iconic status that like a, that, that, you know, someone like a Spielberg has. And maybe that's because um, his, his, his standing in Hollywood isn't, 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 isn't the same. I mean, at the same time, as you mentioned, I think he works with all these really incredibly powerful actors, right? So he's worked with Colin Farrell. He's worked with Brad Pitt. He's worked with Sean Penn. He's worked with Richard Gere. He's worked with Christian Bale. He's worked with Natalie Portman. So then the question is, well, how does he attract this kind of caliber of Hollywood star? And why are these actors working with a director who's making movies that in a way seem to be running contrary to so much of the kind of uh, movies that they would typically make? Uh, One hypothesis, and I think this is uh, Brett's sort of hypothesis, is that, um, you know, maybe some of these actors are just egoistic enough that they like the idea of being able to say they worked with Malick. And because they think it enhances their reputation as a serious actor, as a sort of artistic uh, serious actor. And so uh, they're willing to be uh, working with Malik in movies just to be able to kind of solidify their own reputation as serious actors, even if there's things about Malik's films that they personally disagree with. I mean, I think it's very difficult to watch a film like the the tree of life and and come to the conclusion that an actor like Sean Penn uh, personally actually thinks that there's a satisfactory Christian answer to the problem of evil. I mean, but a way of looking at the film is that this is exactly what Malick has tried to offer us. Even if someone like Sean Penn uh, himself is an atheist and, and, and doesn't really have much patience for that, for that kind of question. Right. And, and you mentioned this Christian thing. We were talking about that. I mean, what, what's your, view of Malik as somebody influenced by kind of biblical precepts. This is so this is another kind of ongoing question that Brett and Thomas and I have been exploring. I mean um I think the thing to say is that his 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 films are much much more sympathetic toward Christianity than than any other sort of Hollywood directors films I can think of. I mean the only other directors who whose filmmaking I think is conducive to to a Christian worldview would be maybe someone like Robert Brisson or uh, Tarkovsky. But as far as American directors are concerned, it, it has to be Malick. So I think the question of Christian cinema, whether it's even possible and whether there have been directors who are engaging in it, it really hinges on on Malick, whether or not he's that's what he's actually doing. Um, you get mixed messaging. There is an ambiguity in his film. So I think you mentioned the Thin Red Line. I mean, the Thin Red Line has a lot of Christian Im- imagery and symbolism. Uh, one of the main recurring uh, musical themes of the film is actually a Christian Malaysian choir who's singing Christian hymns. Uh, there's obviously a lot of biblical allusions to like the, the fall uh, to, 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 to Eden. But there also seem to be Gnostic or pantheistic impulses as well. And so if you think about like American transcendentalism, the work of people like Emerson and Thoreau, 
that's clearly present in a work like the thin red line where you get this idea that uh everything is one a kind of monism where there's not actually a christian creator but god is in some sense uh the universe itself and so there are definitely elements of pantheism and monism in the thin, thin red line and then of course in the new world uh just in virtue of of the historical setting that the film is exploring namely the early 17th century founding of jamestown and john smith's encounter with pocahontas the depiction of the of the indigenous religion of the Powhatan at the time also brings in these ideas of the divine feminine and a kind of pantheism as well. And so that's there. And there's an ambiguity definitely in Malik's filmmaking about, well, is this actually just, you know, theologically orthodox Christian uh, filmmaking or are there these other sort of Gnostic and uh, pantheistic elements in there as well? Yeah, he's he's probably one of the least obvious film directors out there. He doesn't make it easy, but it definitely takes you to a place of internal thought and beauty where his style really brings you in there and sees this kind of vast thing. And I think that's the value of art is try to like take a snapshot of real life that people miss. And I think you mentioned that in your essay or maybe the intro essay by Cinebrink, but it's that you see these things that you take for granted. The normal beauty of a sunset. He films in the morning. He films at night, right? Uh, he does certain things that maybe not are traditional for being outside, not traditional maybe for some other filmmakers. A lot of naturalism, outdoor shots, and a lot of animals too, right? So like maybe some of these other directors would never include such close-ups or, or involvement of these non-human characters, but he seems not, not to have a problem with that. Well, I mean, just let me just let me very briefly list off a sort of litany of positive things about Malick's films, recurring motifs that that arise that I think are it's difficult to to claim that these aren't these aren't good things. I mean, so you mentioned nature. I mean, so one thing is uh, Malick, I think, is giving us a, a view that there's a sense in which nature is inherently good, that creation is good. So that's very anti-nihilistic, right? I mean, uh, now. Uh, friend of mine like Thomas, he has concerns about whether or not Malik is is opening the door to 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 kind of things that can become pernicious, like you know, nature worship or right. the idea of like a kind of post-humanism or sort of like ecological, you know, nonsense where we're we're playing into agendas about climate change and these sorts of things. Totally respect that that's there and that's a concern. But at the same time, you know, it's a deeply kind of Christian message that 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 that, that creation is good that 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 nature is good that 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 there's there's inherent value in 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 water in the clouds in trees in birds right that's so that's clearly there throughout all of malik's films uh, another thing is you just mentioned robert Sinnerbrink. so one thing that robert has drawn attention to uh, others have as well one reason people don't like malik's films is is that I, they find they they find I, I, the, the work convicting. It convicts them, right? So, uh, I mean, Malik is a master of exploring people who are victims of self deceit or self deception, who are in, in in a way lying to themselves, and who have who have lost themselves. And so, Cinderbrink thinks that what Malik is doing in some of his films is that these uh, very often are, are autobiographical films. So. A film like The Tree of Life, for example, which is set in the 50s in Waco, very much this is a film about Malik's own upbringing at that time. And the characters of the family, including the father and, and the brothers, are all more or less inspired by Malik's own family. 
So the moral challenges that these characters are facing and the struggles that they're facing in life that we encounter through the voiceover, well, these are just deeply human uh, uh, situations. So the idea is that I think audiences can go to Malick's films and they can get convicted because they can see themselves in these in these failed characters who are who are having difficulty in life and it, and it can make people feel badly about themselves. But I think that this is a positive virtue of Malick's films is that they they challenge us morally to recognize ourselves in these situations and to, to ask ourselves, well, you know, how am I living? What would I do in this situation, right? That's that's a positive feature of his films. A uh, final kind of positive feature of his films, I would suggest, is that uh, unlike so much of Hollywood film, which is very cynical about marriage and family, Malick very often, I think, centers the importance of the relationship between uh, husband and wife and children. And so even when he's showing uh, immoral, self-destructive behavior, I don't think it's to valorize it. It's actually to show that it is destructive. So in some of his more recent films, like Song to Song, and then also uh, To the Wonder and um, uh, Night of Cups, things like promiscuity, infidelity, abortion, all these sorts of things, which are for us facts of life in our society, it's shown, but it's not valorized. And it's certainly not excused, right? It's actually shown to be detrimental to these people's lives. And that's not at all something that you would get from most Hollywood films. Uh, And it's the same thing with like the Tree of Life. His entire depiction of growing up in Texas in the 50s uh, it reminds us of a world that is it, we're losing, right? So the kids play outside, the, the father goes to work, the mother's a homemaker. There's a kind of traditional order to that world that we're all increasingly losing. And when you watch one of these films from Malik, I think it's a reminder of, of what we are losing, right? That, well, kids used to go outside and play. Now kids just sit around and they look at TikTok all day. That's that's something bad for us. Malik, I think, is showing us that well, this this is bad, and we're losing this, and we should be careful about ignoring the fact that we are that we, that we are losing these practices about how we used to live as Americans in traditional homes with stable families, with committed parents, with children that were were nurtured and protected, and uh, we we're, we're lacking that kind of societal structure now. Right. So he has he's I think he has an integrity in his life and in his films like he's trying to portray that. So maybe it's not as obvious, but the portrayals are there like any great art. It's there to learn from and ruminate in your mind, philosophize is maybe a term you would use. But uh, really great discussion. There's so much in Malik. Like I really appreciate just only seeing two of his films. I have to see everything else. I There's a lot there. But we. uh had a great talk. I mean, what uh, you've worked on other stuff. Can you kind of maybe talk about, I, I guess Malik has the way of the wind is in production right now. So something else is coming up. What do you have on your horizon? Um, well, right now I I'm toying with the idea of a book on film noir, which is going to be called the image of Christ in film noir. And so ordinarily I think film noir is sort of associated with like the, the so-called uh, uh, death of God, but I actually want to kind of try to work through film noir as a genre and try to kind of give some sort of Christian philosophical account of what's going on in noir. So that's one thing I'm working on. And um, yeah, I'm working on a novel right now as well. So I have things that, you know, hopefully God willing will be out pretty soon. Cool. Good for you. And did you say that you're continuing your serialization with uh, Brett and Tom of PSYOP Cinema? Is there another Malik episode in the works? 
So yeah, well, in, in fact, in fact, so I don't know when you're intending to post this, but so today's what the 10th Today. of November. Yeah, Today. so Thomas is planning to post episode four on Monday. And then the hope is to record episode five, which will be on the tree of life sometime next week as well. So we're going to, we'll have episode five, then there's going to be a sixth episode on the so-called waitlist trilogy, and then a seventh episode on a hidden life. Oh, nice. So people can check that out. I'll put a link to Sap Cinema for people who are interested in kind of a deeper discussion on each film. And where's the best place for people to reach out to you, Stephen DeLay? Uh, I have a Twitter account. And um, I have a website, which is a stephendelay.com, and people can find my email there. So uh, I'm easy to get a hold of. Yeah. Anybody has any follow up questions or anything like that? The website is the place to go. Find out about your other books too, right? Stephendelay.com. Mm-hmm. Right, cool. Awesome. And uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great, great discussion. And there's, we could probably do five hours on Malik. There's a lot to talk about, but at least people got an introduction. I guess it's unfortunate that he's a lesser known uh, director, but uh, hopefully this will help get him more well known. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, man. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Cool. Stay there.